If you haven't heard about RadFormation, you're missing out. Six years ago, three medical physicists came together to create the automation solutions they wish they had when they were working long hours in the clinic. Their first offerings, ClearCheck and EasyFluence, changed the way departments approach dose constraints, plan reporting, and 3D planning. Today, RadFormation offers a variety of tools to optimize your practice and help clinics get more done in less time. You won't meet a more passionate team in Radon. Visit RadFormation.com to learn more. Welcome to the Accelerators Podcast. We're bringing you oncology news and views with guests from all over the field. The discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. The Accelerators is part of the Photon Media family of podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at photonmedia.org. Welcome back to the Accelerated Podcast. This is Samuel Parikh, Medical Director at Lake Huron Medical Center and Medical Director at Onco Health, a digital health company. Yeah, I'm Matt Spraker. I'm the other co-host of the Accelerators Podcast, radiation oncologist in Denver, Colorado. And let's have our guests introduce themselves. Hey, so uh, I'm Austin Sim, um, one of the newer faculty, uh, second year at Ohio State. Um, I mostly uh, focus on uh, treating lymphomas and leukemias. Uh, I also do a little bit of thoracic and GI as well. Um, I'm Anna Paulson. I am a radiation oncologist with Providence, Northern California. Um, I treat everything but pediatrics, mostly prostate at this point. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Hi, I'm Avinash uh, I'm at the uh, military hospital in San Antonio, which is not the VA, but parallels the VA system. We treat um, military and uh, retirees. And um, head to toe, it's somewhere in between a community practice and an academic practice and a VA. So kind of a weird hybrid of all three. Anna and uh, Abinash have been on our show before, and we're happy to have them back. Austin's a new new guest. We're here to talk about the um, Astros Early Career Committee. And, uh, this has been interesting. I've uh, somewhat followed and talked to you guys a little bit about it in the past. Um, let's just start out by... Asking, I wanted to ask, like, what what do you guys consider an early career physician, and um, and how did this committee start? Uh, yeah, so um, you know, the NIH definition is you know within the first ten years um, after terminal training, um, but you know when we were thinking about um, you know kind of the concept of early career, we felt that um, the issues and needs of somebody you know nine ten years out of their training and, you know, they're pretty well established in their career and their needs are a little bit different than somebody one or two years out. Um, and so for our definition, we kind of split the difference a little bit and define it as um, eight years after terminal training so that we're really focusing on kind of the very beginning um, right after training um, and making sure that we have targeted resources and, you know, targeted um, that particular population. Um, and so, you know, there's been, you know, kind of a general sentiment that, um, you know, that, we really need to invest more in the future of radiation oncology, uh, future of the workforce. And I know workforce has been, um, you know, kind of forefront of, of a lot of people's minds. And so um, to really develop that workforce and make sure that, you know, we're able to, you know, kind of ensure the longevity of our specialty. Um, there were some more resources and things de devoted to uh, kind of developing, um, you know, kind of this cohort. Um, we also saw really a lack of great early career representation um, and input really throughout many areas of the organization. 
Um, and as a result of that, you know, I think not just us, but there are a number of others uh, in leadership that saw this as well, um, kind of working together to make sure that, you know, we're adequately represented. Um, we have a pathway towards leadership and, you know, are able to help develop and, and maintain our field. So how did you select who was going to be on the committee? So, um, you know, the it goes through the original, uh, the kind of standard process through Astro, where we have an open call for volunteers. Uh, and then the, the volunteers that come in are reviewed by, uh, you know, the committee leadership. Um, it's really the same process as all other committees. Um, and, you know, for us, one of our main charges is... Um, diversity of, of practice setting. And so we were very deliberate about increasing the number of members um, who are in their early career that are in community practice. Uh, and so we did some targeted outreach to some individuals that we knew um, kind of in these settings as well. I, I think I remember you calling me and asking me to be on this and you're like, oh, you said something on Twitter because <laughs> this is the first time I've ever been on a uh, an Astro committee. So this is my kind of, I didn't really participate in Arrow and I attended the re meetings as a as a resident and a medical student, but this is really my first involvement um, with any sort of astro committee. So I don't, I don't remember exactly what I said, but <laughs> I am in community practice, so it's nice to be able to represent that. Yeah, I was a little bit involved in some arrow committees uh, before, and I I think some of my friends who were on some of those arrow committees who are now you know early career people, we we're all kind of talking to each other like, hey, there's this new cool early career committee, and so I think we're all excited because it kind of bridges the gap between Arrow and adult Astro. <laughs> yeah, and I think with our last kind of member, when we selected new members for the upcoming year, we did we deliberately made sure not only did we have a, a diversity in uh, practice setting versus uh, academics versus private practice, um, but we also made sure we had some geographical diversity. So we weren't picking people all from one area of the country. Um, and they also actually have some physicists involved. I think we have four physicists on the committee now. Oh, cool. So um, what are the objectives of the committee and how did you kind of come across these or develop them? And were these decided beforehand or after you joined, did you guys brainstorm on what the goals and objectives are for the committee? So well, we definitely wanted to create a community to support the early career members of Astro. So personally speaking, I think it's really hard to go from residency to to being an attending. I think that's one of the hardest transitions I've personally had to make. Um, you're in undergrad and then you're in medical school and then you're in residency and you're constantly surrounded by a group of peers, mostly peers who are at the same stage in life as you are. And then when you finish residency, if you don't stay in a larger center, if you don't kind of stay in academics, really, you you don't have that cohort of people who I think many people would consider some of their co-residents, some of their closest friends, and you you lose that. And so we really wanted to find a way to nothing's going to replic replicate the resident room, but um, have a have early career physicians have more of a community because I think that's really it's really lacking and it's a really challenging uh, transition. Um, and not only that, we wanted to create some tailored um, programming. Uh, so that's one thing we're working on. We could talk about this later, but we're working on tailored programming at the annual meeting, some tailored webinars, and and also just gather ideas um, because I think the early career members have a lot of really cool ideas up and coming. Um, and we want to make sure that we are able to 
to gather gather those ideas from people who may not have been involved in Astro before. So what kind of th- what kind of things are you thinking about when you think about the challenges that early career physicians face? Um, you know, I, I certainly Matt Matt and I have discussed in this in the past. I guess we're uh, I'm past your eight year mark. I don't know. Matt's got to be really close to that mark. Matt's my year. I'm oh no! So he is. We're in six now. Right? Yeah, we're in year think, six now. We're getting old. Kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I mean, I I've talked to three, at least three of you at various points about challenges in your careers early on. And, um, you know, Anna, I've talked to Matt, Matt, we've talked a lot and, uh, Avinash as well. Um, and I think a lot of the challenges we face early on are, we may think it's only happening to us, but it's pretty widespread. The same issues come up for all of us. Um, some of them, at least, I mean, it it depends in uh, what practice setting, but very similar issues. Yeah. And I, and I think when you're not, seeing peers who are in the same position as you every day, you don't have someone just to like let off steam with. So I can only speak from my personal experience, but so I graduated residency in 2018. Um, I failed physics twice. So that set me back a year um, in terms of being becoming board certified. And in California, it's really challenging because in order to COTVs and sign plans and sign off on daily imaging, you have to have an x-ray operator's license. And you can't have that x-ray operator's license until you pass physics. So I couldn't do anything my first year, which was really, really frustrating. And that was a, a low point in the in a, in my career for me. And I don't I didn't really have anybody to to support me through that. Certainly I did reach out to my former program director, but he he's busy. He's got the current residents to worry about. And then Two years into our career, we hit COVID. Um, so that was challenging. And then a year later, I had a baby. <laughs> so and then so there's all these these challenges you see within the first five years and becoming a parent is pretty common. Having difficulties with boards, I think, is fairly common. And then just going through that that period, mo- those all things can be really isolating experiences. And then if you move to a new city on top of that, reestablishing yourself, finding friends, all while trying to kind of figure out what you're doing in a new job, I think is really, really isolating. And I I think I want people to know who are going through that, you're not alone, even if you don't have your group of residents or co-residents with you. Yeah. Could I actually ask, I, I guess I, so on those lines, I guess I, one question I did have about this committee is I didn't actually know it existed until like kind of recently. Um, and it, do you like? I don't know if you can speak to. Is there any discussion of um, you know trying to make this a little more visible to people? Because I, I was just looking again online, and I don't think that they have any of the committees listed um, unless they're councils. And, and to be fair, I, I would tell you that I find their website hard to navigate, so it could be up there, and I just missed it. But um, I didn't see that. We don't know who's on the committee. Um, and I'm just thinking of like a ra- like if there's just a random radiation oncologist out in a center that could be alone there, like as a solo doc. And like in your position, right? And they and I think they would find it very helpful to reach out to someone like you. Um, there's probably a lot of people that aren't on Twitter. They may not engage as much. They might not go to the meeting. There's just not a lot of ways for them to like find you, right? So do you have a sense of if that's something that might be part of the effort? Yeah, we're definitely, I think uh, that's definitely a very targeted focus. I mean, uh, we've been trying to start, you know, the outline of a web page and putting it up. 
that includes some of some more visibility about what the structure is of the committee and the subcommittees, the work we're doing. Um, you know, we obviously we're trying to use uh, X or Twitter and and other means of passing the words of things like webinars. Like there was a recent um, rocker webinar, or there was a webinar we did about um, how to study for oral boards and things like that. So we're definitely doing our best to get um, the word out there. We definitely are trying to improve on that to get the website a little bit better, um, more accessible, and, and, and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Those are all very, very important things to all of us that I think we're trying to work on. But we're relatively new, right? like a year and a half, right? Is that right? Just about, yeah. Yeah. Man, it's, it's always the younger person who has to make the website. It's like, go make a website. Like, yeah, you go make a website. <laughs> Well, it's really it's, hard. It's hard. It is hard it's because so hard. I think I think Twitter is not quite what it used to be. Um, we are all inundated with emails. The last thing you want is another text message. So it's it's we want to figure out what and if anyone has any suggestions, that would be great. What the best way to reach people is, um, because I don't know. I, I read most of my emails, but not all of them. And sometimes you read them and you just forget about them and you go about your day. Yeah. And I think the other piece is, um, you know, accessibility of the committee that you mentioned. Um, so one of the things that we're actually planning on doing is having quarterly meetings that are just open. Uh, so anyone can sign in, anyone can be there and we'll leave time to basically have, you know, kind of a mini town hall uh, quarterly. So people can kind of come in, um, you know, discuss what's going well, what's not going well, any suggestions, you know, things that we should be thinking about working on and just, you know, kind of continually get feedback. So it's not, you know, kind of a one time, this is a snapshot of what we need to do now, but, you know, kind of having an evolving process and evolving priorities. Um, so hopefully making, um, you know, our meetings more open, less, opa less opaque um, and more accessible as well. And we have a suggestion box on our website and we can send that information so that can be included as part of the show notes um, so people know where to find it. So, you know, looking back like my early career, my first couple of years with my private practice, I I had very good clinical mentorship. Um, I had very good like how to be a grown up doctor mentorship. Like, you know, I'd have a bad patient experience or a referring would be mad at me and my partners would take me out and it would not be uh, conflict or like dressing me down. It'd be like, hey, this is, we heard this happened or, you know, you, you mentioned this and this is kind of what we would do. So, you know, I felt that was pretty strong. I, I don't think everybody has that. But one thing that we did that was weak for me was uh, true leadership mentorship, like how, how to become a leader and how to become, um, you know, uh, how to become like a manager at some point. Because I felt like when you're junior, you, you, you stay in that role sort of. There's a medical director. There's probably somebody who's hired in before you that might be just one or two years above you, but you're still looked at as little brother or little sister in the practice. And I felt it took me many years to figure out how to become a better manager, become a better leader. What, what kind of shortcomings did you guys see or think about uh, early on in your career? Or what, what are you seeing right now? Like Austin, you're very early on. You got, um, you, you know, you three are about four, five, six years out. Um, and what kind of holes do you see and what kind of opportunities do you see that your career uh, that the career committee can help with? Yeah, definitely. This is a, a really big area for me and something I'm very passionate about is leadership and professional development. Um, so, you know, I, I took a, a couple years off in, in medical school to pick up a degree at the law school. And there they really focus on professional development. They really focus on, you know, these so-called soft skills that are, you know, just as important. 
Um, it's really lacking in a lot of medicine. Um, it's largely kind of ignored, and you just kind of go through the the treadmill until suddenly you become a big L leader and have big L leader, you know, uh, kind of responsibilities, but you haven't really been trained and you don't really have the skills necessarily other than what you've managed to pick up. Um, and so, you know, instead of focusing on clinical topics and things like that for our webinars and our educational materials, a lot of it is really based on a lot of building up these other skills, you know, how to, you know, create and maintain a referral stream, how to build a practice, you know, what does promotion and tenure look like? What do I need to do in that in that setting? Um, you know, how to create and cultivate relationships, how to, you know, kind of manage um, different people, with different expertise in the department, how to become a mentor from being mentee. Uh, so a lot of these sessions um, are really focusing on a lot of these aspects. And in addition to kind of, you know, creating a community for this type of near peer mentorship as well, um, really targeting a lot of our educational content to, you know, things that, you know, we see as, as missing from, you know, kind of the continuum of education. Yeah, and I could echo a lot of that. I mean, I think um, when I uh, graduated out of residency, it was peak COVID, we had our second kid moving across country, all the typical hectic stuff. Um, but then on top of that, I kind of took over a medical director equivalent type of position. Um, uh, you know, uh, like a month or two after passing my oral boards, which at least I had the time to study for that. But, you know, I thought it'd have a more of a gap there. And then all of a sudden I was like overseeing hiring and firing actions and disciplinary actions for other staff members and in the clinic and, you know, tr talking to people all across the, the military for different budgets for Linux and other things and, you know, talking to people across country. So it was a whirlwind of like, no one really prepared me for that. Um, and I had a similar experience to uh, to Austin because I, I went to um, uh, West Point for college. And so the military is also very big about mentorship and leadership and professional development. And it was very ingrained to that, that there was at least a couple hours a week dedicated to, to programming like that. Um, but, you know, once you get out into the medical world, even the military medical world, um, there's not a lot of that because, there, you know, there's uh, you're really they try to have you focus on clinic. And, and but at the same time, you still have to find time for all these other duties. And so. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely overwhelming. And uh, a lot of these kind of experiences that we all share in the early career committee, we're trying to build tools, whether it's webinars or program at the annual meeting or different things within the, uh, the subcommittees to try to target all of this. So Avinash, I, I will say like, I, I worked in DC for several years and then I worked in Tacoma for a very short time. I've been surrounded by, uh, military docs all of our locums in Tacoma, a lot of our locums in DC, and a lot of our partners that we would hire at both of those practices were former military docs. To me, uh, they seemed ready to go on day one. Um, there seemed to be something different uh, that I thought. And I, in my head, like if I get a CV from a military doc, they go to the top of my, my pile. And that's just based on my experience. Do you think there's something in the training or something in the development that you're saying, like during West Point years that you had or that are that you're given? And do you think some of that can translate um, to early career docs to help them? Because there's something there. And I, you know, it's hard, you know, like the leader of my first practice was uh, a Navy, he was on a submarine, he's an officer, um, and two others were as well. And they they were all amazing. Like you, you listen to them, and you learned a lot from them. Yeah, I certainly think there's um, it's a complex answer because people 
join the military at different time points. Some like I joined before college or or during college. Some people jo- to do a military med school scholarship, so they join then. Some people, you know, um, join once they're already past their in residency or past residency. And so, also depending on whether which service you're in, some services require you to be like a general medical officer to where you're essentially a primary care doctor, or you may deploy a lot before they'll allow you to do a residency even. Um, so I would say that on average, people, military residents uh, have a, a relatively broad exposure to different things that may give them some maturity. And I think another aspect of it is we just live in an era of, of volunteer military, thankfully. And so, you know, whatever motivated someone to join the military is probably similar attributes, whether it's, you know, commitment to selfless service or or giving back, uh, whether it's your community or your country. And so I think there's some commonalities there. Um, and, you know, I definitely think that, uh, like Austin was saying, in terms of leadership development, uh, we're trying to bake that into some of the things that we're doing in the ECC, um, whether that's not just looking at mentorship in a hierarchical way, but also peer-to-peer mentorship and trying to set up communities for that. Um, and set up more educational sessions that are focusing on soft skills, uh, not, you know, things like building a practice or how do we talk to a disinterest or a physicist? Like these are all things that, you know, no one teaches you in residency. And so we're trying to create some programming to work towards some of those goals. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been given those lectures since 2012, you know, about like how to build a practice and, you know, how, how to, how to, how to work with the staff. Like, I, and I get that, like those seminars and those webinars have some use, but like, I, I get the sense that there, there's gotta be something else. Um, and that's kind of wonder, like, May and Matt have talked about like what what this commit like actually what is what can be done or what are you guys doing and I don't mean to put you guys in the spot like yeah. we, we want you guys to have like impact because it sucks the first five years sometimes right Some and people I, I have terrible experiences that's that's something we're still trying to figure out like so I don't come from the military background but I did my job when I was in college I worked in customer service I worked in a in um, retail. And I think that's where I learned some of my soft skills because when you work in retail, the customer is always right. And not that patients are our customers, but I think that customer service background, I think goes a long way towards being able to diplomatically work your way through some challenging clinical situations or leadership situations. Um, So, I mean, do you have any any suggestions for us? Uh, No, I mean, the retail, the retail, like people told me that like, Every medical student should be a waiter for some period in their life. I agree and, with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, working in retail or being yeah. a waiter, I think it. I think those skills go a long way. I, I sort of say it, it's unfair to say, because obviously, like, you can't control this retrospectively once you're a doctor, but you can kind of tell when it's, like, someone's first job, right? When their doctor job is their first job exactly. ever. Exactly. Like, you can sort of tell bit versus like someone that was like a bartender or whatever. So I think it's just there's a multitasking and a customer service aspect there. One thing that I actually have been thinking a lot about, though, is um, you, you certainly one, one thing that could be done is you could do like, you know, these leadership training programs, the ESTRO program, like comes super highly like recommended by everyone. And I sort of was, you know, kicking around the idea this year. It's not going to work out timing wise and you have to like go to Europe for that. So it's not an easy lift for a lot of people. But that's definitely something that could be done is just assembling um, you know, or, or giving a space to teach about this because 
one thing that, you know, Evan, as you said, is it could just be, I think we can all admit that like, this is not taught or focused on at all in traditional medical education. Right. And, um, I'm mostly bringing this up so so I can plug it. But, you know, the ASCO CEO was just on like one of the one of the medical oncology podcasts and talks all about this, about his pathway for, um, you know, for becoming a better leader. And 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 it includes a lot of things that just aren't ever taught or talked about in, med- in medical school directly. Um, but one of the things I'm starting to wonder is maybe you just have to learn this stuff by doing and it just kind of sucks. Like, yeah. so maybe giving a space to let people talk about that share ideas, um, because I actually do feel like I've become a much better leader in my clinics, um, you know, over the past six years, but it was really by making mistakes, learning from what I call negative mentors. I mean, it's not a secret that they're out there in our field. Like you can watch people that do this poorly and learn what not to do. But like, I think just sharing stories and learning what works and what doesn't. And there are things that I definitely learned just by making a mistake. So you can imagine if you have a town hall or a meeting or a space where it were early career people can just share these stories. Maybe that prevents one mistake from the, you know, the next year's you know, person. Reading a book about leadership or, or listening to a webinar about leadership is like reading a book about sex. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> right, you have to do it, right? Like it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one thing that that really is difficult for me, like up to my first lead, major leadership job at MultiCare, which you know I flamed out. I'd say it didn't work out for me. Um, in the first months, we had all these like courses and courses and books. I was given all these management books and oh my God. I mean, like, but it was just like, just reading. And I feel like early career people, like you guys know so much. You're so smart. Like, why don't you immediately get something like to lead and to learn from that? Because it's like, all right, I've been doing this job for eight years. Now you're vice chair of this and you've never done anything before. So I can speak a little bit from the community practice. So I'm on the medical executive committee of Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital, which is one of the one of the hospitals that I'm credentialed for or with. Um, And, you know, it's been interesting learning from that experience. And they've talked about sending us to some executive leadership program. But it's really challenging to find the time to do things like that. So these meetings take up a two-hour chunk in the middle of my day on Tuesday. And then if we have peer, basically PIP, people who are not behaving, uh, we have to review their performance. Like we had um, one case where we had to have several meetings after hours. But ended up like, and they were, they were virtual, so I could do them from home, but I'm like on the phone until nine o'clock at night. And it's, it's really hard to find the time to do these kinds of things. And one challenge is, is how do you fit this in when you're being evaluated by your productivity? Um, you can only do so many things and it's just a challenge to fit it all in and still I don't know, get all your notes done on time or get your contours done on time. And I'm not somebody who really, I try to keep my work at work. Um, and so I, I think right now for for me personally, and I can only speak for myself, it's a time, it's a time thing. I'm not willing to take time outside of work to do all of this leadership development because my, right now my family's most important. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 important to me too and like that holds me back a little bit until until i got this job i i've never like i got this job and i was valued so highly because of my past experience 
And I, I, I experience in my job more transparency than probably you can imagine uh, at the hospital level. Like, I know the books. I know all the revenue that's coming in. I know all the, all the cost centers that's coming in. The C-suite offers this to me. Um, and I wish that you guys could get that right now. Like, I wish you could look at the books right now and see what's coming in and what costs what. And when you lose a charge and how much money has lost because you guys didn't do the paperwork right. And uh, what it costs to recruit a new RTT because one didn't fit in. Like, I didn't know all this stuff. And now it's it's so open to me and I'm able to learn and make decisions and think critically alongside the CEO and not have decisions made at me but made with them about all this kind of stuff. And I, I maybe I'm, I'm just frustrated like that you guys aren't going to get that experience. Like OSU is just not going to open up their books to you, Austin. Like, I, I don't imagine they will. I mean, um, and I think that that makes it very hard to understand if you don't know how the sausage is made. And I don't know how you guys will get that experience until you're in that position. And all of a sudden, and then now you don't have the skills or you've never even, you don't, you don't yeah. even know anything. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, my ideal world would be kind of a redesign of medical education where this is part of your curriculum from the beginning. Um, but you know, I was lucky where I trained, um, Sarah Hoff is, you know, the, our section head of GI, she's very forward thinking and she developed this longitudinal leadership course for all the residents where monthly we would have guest speakers talking about different aspects of leadership and it was partially simulation based. It was all case based. So we'd have a case, we'd have to go through a case and go through the decision making. Uh, one of the sessions was actually, you know, a CapEx, right? So, you know, you're purchasing X machine. This is how much it costs. These are the books, you know, kind of the fictional books. And then, you know, the second half of that case was you're hiring a new physician. You know, this is the startup cost and all of that. And, you know, kind of does it work? And so, you know, I think a lot of it really lies in doing before it matters. So simulation, I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's really taken, um, you know, medical education and transformed it. And I, I don't see why we can't do that for, you know, this type of this learning as well. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It didn't, we didn't get a chance to discuss it, but we, we talked to the ABR actually recently and I wanted to, I didn't have the time to talk about this, but I felt that like practice management should be part of our certification. And questions about practice management should be on our board exams. And heck, even maybe the oral exam cases come up like this, where maybe it's not a failable offense, but here's a here's a situation and how would you approach this situation? And early on in your career, where it's part of the curriculum, I mean, maybe that's where you guys can go, like is with this, with with resident education is making making this maybe the business side. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, medicine is a huge business. It's 20, nearly 20% of GDP. It's the biggest driver of the economy, one of the biggest drivers of the economy. And yet the, the the people that are creating the revenue and creating the cost have no idea how it's being done. You, you're um, going to get us canceled <laughs> by suggesting that we put business stuff on the boards. I, I, so I actually want to push back a little bit and, and have a different take. I mean, I guess I would say that, you know, I wonder... Um, I, I I feel like we're in a place where we're not teaching enough, right? And and my concern for that comes from the fact that I do think 
that there are situations in medicine where physicians can be abused. We, we certainly can all agree on that, probably. Um, and and you have to know enough to like know when you're when that's a problem or when you're at risk of being abused or there's something shady going on that's not treating you fairly. And I find there's a lot of early career physicians that just do not know. I mean, they have stuff where they come in the context of like just job advice and they say things and I'm like shocked by what their what their situation is. And they didn't even know that that was like bad. Right. I mean, things like as simple as like they're not being offered health insurance or they're, you know, they're carrying 15,000 RVUs for 100 grand a year, that kind of a thing. It's just so far away from what you should be paid like the value of a radiation oncologist, right? But then then like not everyone needs to be the business leader. I don't know if you remember, but someone posted on X this like quiz about CapEx and how much it costs to and I was like, you know, I'm actually super interested in this from a system standpoint and I think it's really cool, but I'm never going to get that question right and I don't care to because I'm not going to be the one like buying these machines. So I think we need to find a middle ground where people are smart enough about these things to protect themselves and make sure they're getting treated fairly. But, yeah, but maybe Matt, you know, we're gonna yeah. we have to learn how to treat an abdominal rhabdomyosarcoma, right? Like yeah, and you're yeah, not gonna treat yeah. one of those in fact, right? Like there are things that we're gonna come across in our education that we may not be doing, but exposure is important. Like to yeah, know yeah. to know how to refer it out or yeah. how to how to handle it. And if yeah. I would just say that I have no concerns that there's space for it. We have an entire year where we're not even sure we need it, right? We all argue about how long the residency should be. And then in that year, it's highly unstructured across programs. And so there's plenty of room to teach this stuff. I just don't know the level that it should be. And maybe it should just be a little less than the level that you care about because not everyone's going to be in the same position as you. The the space is there, guys. Like, right? I mean, yeah. How many hours are people contouring normal structures in residency? It's it's insane. Like, uh, it, 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 with the software we have, I I know a local residency where they're still spending hours doing normals, um, and not you know having time to like learn these. We, you know, Evan, I said soft skills. I I don't know if they're soft. These these are important skills. These are like this is life. These are life skills for a doctor. Overtrust in AI is a growing concern in today's world, and it's no different in the realm of radiation oncology. That's why the team at Radformation has always prioritized safety in their AI solutions. With intelligent grouping and auto-scrolling, AutoContour ensures that all AI-generated structures are reviewed efficiently prior to hitting the TPS. But it's more than just safe. It saves a ton of time. It's no surprise that AutoContour is used by over 850 clinics worldwide, offering high-quality structure models like lymph nodes, bowel loops, and so many more. Check out AutoContour for yourself at radformation.com. Is this discussed in the committee? I mean, what do you guys think about all this? Yeah, I think we definitely talk about it. I mean, the challenges are just kind of multifold because people are in different practice settings and, you know, being at a you know, big academic institution where there's maybe very little to visibility about how the sausage is made, like you were saying, versus being in a smaller community practice where you're encouraged and highly incentivized to be very, to have a lot of visibility about it because it's much more important for your bottom line. Um, and then, you know, I think there's also a, a certain limit to, I guess, how many things we can put our initiatives in and then also how much we can actually do we definitely um one thing we've been cognizant of we've been trying to have a lot of um focus groups recently to get feedback from astro and non-astro members um to solicit the kind of this kind of um advice just like you're talking about to see what we can do better so i definitely said that it's a very it's 
definitely a uh, evolving progressive process that we're working on. Um, maybe Austin or Anna can answer that more specifically. <laughs> and yeah. I think one of our challenges is we have all these ideas, like I, you've actually given us some good ideas about skills that would be very valuable for early career physicians in terms of career development. But I think the challenge we run into is how how do we implement things? Um, and I think the bottom line is always time. So we want to be really mindful of people's time. Um, do we want to have mentorship groups um, where we we meet, we kind of pair people at different career paths, at different career locations? We're working on developing what's the ideal mentor. But but ultimately, how how do we want this to happen? Do we want to happen it to happen organically? Is it going to be something that happens at the annual meeting? We need something outside of the annual meeting because if we just do the annual meeting once a year really isn't enough. But then asking people to take more time out of their their day and travel more often is really challenging. Or do we do something entirely virtually and, and have people meet in sort of like a fireside chat on a monthly basis and kind of create the the space for somebody to do to do that. And um, so I think that's something that we talk about all the time is what what's the best venue for something like this that people will not only can they they make time for, but they're willing to attend and really what they want to do. We want something that people want to do and they find valuable. People are I I they they want it bad like they want the opportunity like i shouldn't have been reading books about trust and radical honesty and uh, management techniques they should have said hey we got a wait list in radiology sim will help us out with that you know like this is like where we're going to learn i think and i i don't know exactly how to do it how to convince people of my mind mindset on this but we're not we might be junior docs but we're 31 at minimum when we finish residency you're like a fully grown adult and you you have a brain you have a bachelor's degree uh and an md and residency training and you know like these big hospitals hire mckinsey 23 year old analysts to look at these same problems while the doctor internally isn't allowed to think about it or maybe doesn't want to or or maybe isn't incentivized to, but rather than having an external consultant try to figure out these problems, wouldn't it be great to have Austin work on it or to have Avinash work on it or have, you know, Anna, you're working on, you're already on the executive committee. And I think like we, we're having a radiology problem right now. And it's like, I go upstairs, I'm like, hey, what are we doing about this? And like, we actually have a back and forth about it. And like, I'm engaged. They want me to do it because they're, they got me on salary and they can use me as as they want. And they do because I, I want to do it and I have enthusiasm for it. And I know you guys would too. And I know a lot of young ducks would rather be involved in the solution. And I, I'm, I'm, I wonder, because one of the things I thought about in Multicare was like when I was, if I was going to stay there was like, I wanted to have a PGY5 come from wherever nationally and then just work on a project for me and just like say, this is a problem in our department. And that's your internship for three months. And you're going to come up with a plan uh, with us. And you're going to see patients and stuff too. But like something like that, maybe one of these major hospital systems or one of the academic centers can develop a fellowship like that where you're actually working on things because you're grownups, like you're adult human beings, very smart people. The people I meet in radiation oncology are brilliant. Um, odd at times, but brilliant. Um, and <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, it's wasted human capital. That's what I think of it as. 
Yeah, and I think some of what you're talking about, I think, is is super important. I think there's like a maybe a slow cultural shift in medical education. I think there are, you know, more med schools that are trying to create more flexibility in their curriculum. There's some residencies that are being much more open in their research years about people doing MBAs or, uh, you know, any other sorts of degrees that are not the traditional research paths. Um, but I, I think a lot of it, the the culture in medicine and big academic places is just starting to shift towards this, to where they still place a lot of importance on the traditional things, being a good clinician, research, those types of things. I, you know, I think, I don't know if our committee is going to be able to make that shift. Maybe it'll just take a 10 years for the generation that is in these leadership positions to sort of, you know, transition over. But I, I don't know if we can answer that question, but I think, I, I, and I think we're all preaching to the choir here because I think we're all passionate about these kind of things, but there's also a large portion of Radonks who just like to, you know, sit in their little office and go to tumor board and just say no contraindications to radiation and not get involved. And, you know, there's still those Radonks out there too. And I think it's going to be a while before some of the, that culture changes as well. So to, to both of your points real quick, and Anna, this is uh, uh, directly to your point as well. Um, you, you, like, I think it's okay if there's a Radonk that wants to do that, right? I, I think one thing we could do that would help a ton is recognize that actually the exposure of young radiation oncologists is extraordinarily narrow. I don't know if you all saw that paper posted yesterday that there's like like 55% of chairs in our field come from eight institutions. And like, and that's been true for, for more than a decade. I think the prior paper it was like five institutions and everyone comes up through academics, right? And so one of the mis- biggest mistakes that I made as an early career physician was just taking on too much. And it was taking on things that I was passionate about and then still doing the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing because everyone was telling me that's what you do as a radiation oncologist. But then it took me a little while to realize that the people that was that were talking to me all kind of had the same job. And there's all these jobs that you could do outside of that. And so maybe being a little more intentional and giving the advice that people should be you know, very direct about what they want to do specifically, realizing it's okay to do things that you never saw your attendings doing and and training um, or those around you are doing, that's fine. And that helps like the time issue, right? Just recognizing you only have time to do a certain number of things and you need to pick the ones that you're passionate about. And then one thing that I think that, that the committee could do is like just recognizing what the goal of the committee is, right? And it might be a little different depending on who you ask. I suspect that one goal of the committee is to increase the attractiveness of the society to early career radiation oncologists so that they join, right? That's, I mean, inevitably it's a goal of everything that a society does. And so that's fine. But everything you all are talking about is a little bit different. And so maybe it does take some time to put these resources together, but it could be that Astro needs to create early career resources about the business of radiation ecology. And if only 10% of people read it, that's fine. Maybe only 10% of people care, but right now there's none of that, right? And so really all we have is resources for people that like want to apply for grants or like do clinical trials. And there just needs to be more breadth of resources, I think. And then teaching the young radiation oncologists that they need to be very intentional about protecting their time and and be realizing that everyone's mortal despite the fact that you're like an all-star rock star resident medical student you can't make 27 hours in a day and so you need to find what you do in the context of your life especially if you're like you know having to write a bunch of notes and go home to your family and all that kind of stuff well and i also think letting people know it's okay to put projects aside like so maybe I mean, one one thing that I I'm, would love my my group to eventually have is some sort of backup childcare, which we don't have, like backup emergency childcare. 
Um, so far, my, my, my efforts haven't gone anywhere yet. So it's like, okay, maybe I'm going to put that aside for a little bit, do some more research, figure out what infrastructure things need to happen to make, make that a reality. But like, so that's maybe a project that you work out sort of outside a clinic. And that is in some ways considered a leadership role because you're building a program outside of the clinic. But like, it's okay also to put that aside and focus on something else. And in the meantime, you don't have to just push forward constantly if, if you're not getting anywhere and you're getting frustrated. Yeah. And I think a lot of the programming that we've put together for the annual meeting um, has really focused on, you know, and uh, touched on a lot of these issues. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, I think, you know, shifting just a little bit, but the, the Aero Graduating Residence Survey, it's a really great look into exactly what's happening at the time of graduation for the first job. But after that, that's kind of all the data that we have. We don't know anything about the second job. And we know that there are a lot of people that switch jobs, you know, within the first two or three years, and we're capturing none of that. And so, you know, we hosted a panel talking specifically about career transitions and why people made changes, why they didn't, and to get more insight about that. Um, you know, we had uh, more programming about um, more, you know, kind of the business topics as well. I think we're trying to figure out where to put it in and develop it more. But, you know, I think we've, you know, we, we've all identified and, you know, kind of, um, you know, agree on, on similar needs of, of all these topics. It's just a matter of putting them together and, and putting them out there and finding the optimal way to do that. A longitudinal thing I've been asking for years. And is there just no interest? Um, th no, there's definitely interest. Uh, I know yeah. that's uh, I'm interested myself. in doing it. I know people yeah. are interested in the data. I mean, is yeah. there no interest in anybody doing it or what? Like uh, Shalane Goodman and James Bates specifically um, have been really, really keen on doing this. And that was one of the things that I wanted to really work on when I took over Arrow as well. Um, so it's something that we're trying to figure out how best to do it and how to structure it. I think that's kind of the first hurdle. Um, I know that we have, um, you know, support from, uh, you know, various members within the organization. And I know there's a lot of interest. And I know that we're it's something that we're kind of still trying to figure out how best to get it done. Um, you know, they're, you know, we're. We're definitely going to be working together to to make something maybe, like that happen. But maybe doing it, doing a shitty job, is better than doing nothing. Yeah. Like get something going for that second year, and the third year, and the fourth year. Because if you brainstorm for years and years and years, and like for perfection, whatever perfect, perfect is the enemy of good. We're never going to get any data. Like people would love to know that second. We people make those comments about fifty percent of people change jobs in two or three years. We have no hard data on that. Like we have, no, we don't really know. Um, about those kind of transitions or transitions from private to community or community to, or you know private to academics like these types of things would be helpful people get it in their head that you can't go from private to academic is this actually true do we have data on this is it that hard if, if people i feel people get tricked into taking an academic job it's like well if you don't do academics now you're never going to be able to get back in is this factual like i i don't know that um and i, and I, I on our know. panel at astro we did have someone who made that switch back yeah, so there's at least one person, right? Mm -hmm. So there's um, at least one person that's done that, and you know, I, I, I had the yeah. I had the opportunity to do so, um, you know, eight years in at Boma, I didn't, or seven years in and at Boma, I didn't take it, but it, it it was there. But people are being told that by their faculty, you know, that you can't come back, and maybe you know, maybe there needs to be some evidence pointing in that direction that that's not the case. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm passionate about this stuff. Like, I I had a hard hard first five years. Like, I I really, 
wish I had a committee and wish people were thinking about these things, but, um, and not, not to like be hard on you, but like maybe webinars and seminars aren't, and these types of things aren't the only things to do. Like we've been doing that for a long time. Um, what, what's actionable to, to truly help you guys. Um, that's, and that's the hard part. I'm not saying I have the answers, but it, that's the hard part, I think. Yeah, I think we, you know, we definitely agree. And we're, you know, we're actively seeking to, um, you know, kind of continually get feedback and continually get, um, you know, input into our activities, because we don't want this to be a static thing. We want this to be the best form of a committee that we can have to help as many people the best way we can. Um, um, and so that's, you know, we're, we're, you know, trying a couple of things just to start off, you know, it's everything's still new. We're trying to figure out what works. We're trying to figure out how to implement on some of these things. But, um, you know, the over, overarching goal is to to really be the best, not at now, time now or time a year from now, but to continually, um, you know, kind of be the best resource. Well, one thing people have reached out to me a lot about is the first first year people who end up taking a solo job. Maybe something dedicated to that group. It's not a small group. There's a lot of people that go right out into practice and they're the medical director of a small clinic. Um, I, I got a guy called me yesterday and he interviewed for a job. He's like, I don't know. I'm a little worried. I'll be the, you know, the only guy there. It's a small town. I'll be the main person there and no, you know, no backup, no partner. And he's hesitant to take the job. And so, you know, I was, you know, saying, I'm like, Hey, I'm a couple hours down the road. You can run cases by me whenever you want. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't want you to be nervous about this stuff, but it looks like a good opportunity. You know, maybe that, that group, I think they worry a lot. And certainly maybe some of these jobs aren't getting filled because people have fears about that. Nice little project. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point. Take, taking some good notes here. <laughs> I I would have loved to have been on this committee. Can I, can I ask actually, so I, I don't know if you like really directly talked about it yet. You have this on your outline. Similar, but I, I'm sort of curious to hear how you three feel like you're doing. I mean, like, do you think, like, how do you feel like it's going so far? And I think this is great brainstorming, but I guess I just, I mean, you've done work so far and you you put effort into it. And so anything to share with the audience about what's been successful, uh, what you feel like has, has been um, like kind of a big takeaway from your first efforts? I think for me, um, the hardest thing is um, getting sufficient time from you know from the committee members because we're all early career we're all trying to figure out how to treat patients independently we're all trying to study for boards we're all trying to you know many of us are starting new families there's a lot of competing um uh you know demands on our time and this is not to say that people aren't invested and not spending enough time that's not what i want to say but it's just hard to um you know the the group is very motivated and they, there's a lot of ideas and there's a lot of things that we want to get done but it's just hard to find the time as as Anna was saying before you know it's just there's just so many demands that are kind of converging you know right at this this nexus of of early career and so you know despite all of our best intentions and everything and all the work and effort that people have put in and all the time that people have already put in um, you know, I, I feel like things are moving incrementally in a way that I would want to see faster, but it's just hard to, to, to do that just, you know, with the 24 hours that we have in a day. And I'll, I'll echo that. I mean, this is my first foray into working on a committee and I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm impatient. We're all kind of impatient. We like things to happen. And, and I, I realize that, okay, things are happening, but it is taking a really long time. You just, you inch forward rather than just sort of it's hard to see the movement, I guess, is what I'm going sometimes. 
Um, and you do have to kind of take a step back and look big picture. Um, but it it is fairly slow going. Um, I think one thing that we did, we have done well, is I think our, our session at the annual meeting last year, I think that went really well. Um, we had a lot of great questions. I think we had more questions than we had time for, which is always, always a good thing. It was well attended. So people spoke really highly about that. But I heard a lot of great feedback and, uh, people were excited to attend. So that that's, that's a win and that's a start. It's, it's bringing awareness for sure. And people are thinking and talking about it, which is super important. Just to emphasize the point. I hate this word, but you don't need to have deliverables, right? Like I don't, I'm not, I wasn't asking for you to prove to us what you've done so far. I think just the act of doing this is helpful. And I think it's great that it's ongoing and, and you, we can link Simone's maxims, but there, you know, I mean, everyone's aware that like with these committees, you know, it's really, it moves forward at the pace of the kind of most motivated person. And the three of you particularly, they're doing a lot of stuff, right? And so like, it's that, I don't think anyone's expecting anything specific. Um, but, but again, I mean, I think like, you know, some people aren't even aware of the committee. And so just trying to emphasize and hear, um, you know, what's going on, I think is helpful. And I agree with Simo. I heard lots of positive feedback about that session. And so I think that can be a huge win. You should be proud of that. Um, even just that's a big success in the first year of the committee, right? Shout out to James Bates. He's done a really great job putting these together. Bates is the best. Bates is the best. I just, I, I always tell Bates, I, I hope he's, he's president of Astro one day. I just, I think he's wonderful. <laughs> I think he's super sharp. Yeah, and I think uh, Simil and Matt, but a lot of things you guys are talking about, I think um, we're all passionate about as well. And it's hard to find that balance. Like we're talking about time time and balancing everyone's time, you know, is uh, the right form like a workshop type of thing that people come into? Is it creating more programming for that type of thing at the annual meeting? Is it, um, you know, a full fellowship type of program that's run through some sort of academic program? Um you know, there's so many different venues to do that. So, I mean, I think the early career committee is at least Astro's first effort to try to take a stab at some of the stuff. Um, so the easiest way for us to start with that is definitely things at the annual meeting where people are in person and have time, even if it's just a few hours to dedicate to it. And, you know, maybe that'll mature into something more like I'm sure things like the Astro refresher and um, there are other things that probably used to just be uh, things that were much smaller and now our whole standalone meetings, just like you have Astro subsite, you know, head and neck meetings, GI meetings, whatever. And so um, it would be awesome to see this mature into that. I mean, uh, we'll see. I think it just depends on people's interest and uh, how this takes off. Great guys. Thank you so much for joining and being so forthcoming. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is the Scythian, Sisyphusian, I can't say the word, but it's a hard task. Um, it's something that's been neglected for years, for decades. And I'm really happy that you, you guys are great people and working on a really hard problem of, for, for young docs. That's the, that's the group that I've always cared about the most. Um, I used to be one of them and I really hope that you guys make some progress and anything I can do or accelerators can do to help, um, you know, we're there for you. Uh, but this good luck. And we hope to have a part two episode next year where you tell us what else you've accomplished. Yeah, we would love that. Thank you again for, you know, inviting us and, and hosting us. I think, you know, to combat the, um, you know, awareness problem, I think this is a, you know, a really essential way to, to kind of get the word out. And we really appreciate, uh, you know, giving us the, the time to do that. Yeah, I had no idea you had a website. So please share that with us and we'll definitely link it, tweet it out, all that kind of stuff, X it out, Z it out, whatever. <laughs> Yes, thank you. We appreciate coming on to talk and hang out.
Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. All right. Take care. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, please subscribe and leave us a rating. Also, head to photonmedia.org and check out the rest of our content. We hope you're having a great day and look forward to seeing you again soon.